Support for AHLA comes from Clearwater, the leading provider of enterprise cyber risk management and HIPAA compliance software and services for healthcare organizations, including health systems, physician groups, and health IT companies. Our solutions include our proprietary software as a service-based platform, IRM Pro, which helps organizations manage cyber risk and HIPAA compliance across the enterprise, and advisory support from our deep team of information security experts. For more information, visit clearwatercompliance.com. Well, good day, Ileana. It's great to be speaking with you and working with you again. Thanks, Bob. Always great to talk with you, too. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Terrific. Um, you know, many attorneys probably know who you are, but for those who do not, would you mind sharing a little bit about your background? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm Ileana Peters. I'm currently a shareholder at Pulsinelli Law Firm, which is an AmLaw 100 law firm. We have offices all over the country. We have a very robust data privacy and security practice, including in the healthcare sector. Until about three and a half years ago when I joined the firm, I was the acting deputy director for data privacy and security in the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services. It's a very long-winded way of saying I was in charge of the HIPAA program and other data privacy and security related um, legal requirements. Um, I spent my career with OCR up to when I joined Pulsinelli, uh, including as a senior advisor for HIPAA enforcement. Um, I wrote regulations and guidance, trained state attorneys general, worked very closely with other federal, state agencies in the White House on data privacy and security issues. And so I'm happy, always happy to talk with you about those issues. All right. Well, great. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it was about three and a half years ago that um, I sold a portion of our business at Clearwater and moved into the role of executive chairman. So I think we've both been in different roles over that period of time. But going back even further, I think it's interesting. Um, we've worked going way back uh, on several of the same enforcement matters, although, so to speak, we might have been on different sides of the table. But it's been great since 2018 uh, to be able to collaborate with you and work for and support some of the same clients. Um, quickly, my background includes work in compliance and privacy and security and risk management uh, as an executive an educator and an entrepreneur. And I've had the good fortune of working with some great teams over the span of uh, 40 years. I know that makes me sound like a candidate for the Smithsonian. Um, so let's dive in. W what we'd like to talk about today and what I'd like to um, uh, ask you questions about actually goes back to an article that we co-authored earlier this year entitled the Legal Liabilities of Enterprise Cyber Risk Management. It was published by AHLA. My questions for you to, today are gonna to be based on that and also what I've observed over the years, a couple of decades working with healthcare organizations on the treatment of cyber risk. And so in, in a nutshell, um, here's how I've seen it. And, and I'm gonna ask you to comment um, on it from your perspective. So, uh, you know, obviously HIPAA is not a newsflash, uh, privacy rules, security rule published in the Federal Register in 2001 and 2003, respectively. Um, it, I've seen an evolution. There was a period of um, maybe the dark ages when enforcement was uh, reactionary and complaint driven. 
And then all of a sudden, uh, we entered what I call the era of compliance, uh, circa 2009, with the High Tech Act being passed. Then fast forward the tape a little bit, we get into the two 2015 era. Um, I dubbed that year the uh, the year of the mega breaches with, among others, uh, Anthem and a number of other large payers. Um, I, I may not have the exact count off the top of my head, but I think it might have been like 178 million records breached that year. Go fast forward a little bit further to 2018. A, a big concern arose about patient safety as a result of all the biomedical devices that were being attached to our patients and planted in our patients and simultaneously be connected, being connected to networks and ultimately the internet. And then last but not least, I've seen a move into an increasingly greater amount of concern when it comes to cyber risk management around medical professional liability and, and ultimately leading to personal liability issues for some of the C-suite members and board members. So um, I, what's your sense? Is, is, is that how you've seen it evolve when it comes to enterprise cyber risk management? Yeah, Bob, great question. So I think generally, yes. Um, I, you know, I, I see it a little bit differently, but I think that's because of where I sit. Um, I've seen um, evolve, uh, I've seen these issues evolve, as you say, to include, you know, regulatory actions first at the federal level. Um, so HHS, for example, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, um, really getting increasingly involved in enforcement of data privacy and security issues over the past decade or so. Um, you know, really beefing up um, enforcement initiatives related to data privacy and security concerns at the federal level. Um, I've also seen DOJ, for example, become more involved in the criminal side of that as well. So, you know, simultaneously with the FTC and HHS um, sort of ramping up civil enforcement, the DOJ Department of Justice has ramped up criminal enforcement as well. And then simultaneously, you know, the state AGs, the state attorneys general who have concurrent jurisdiction over many of these issues, either because they have HIPAA jurisdiction or because there are state consumer protection requirements that they have jurisdiction for enforcing, um, have become also increasingly involved. And we um, see, you know, multi-state actions by state attorneys general over the past few years, which we didn't see initially. So, I think you know state and federal regulators are getting increasingly involved, as well as plaintiffs' attorneys. So um, you know there are there are attorneys in the private sector that are very interested in data breach issues, which I think is really um, to your point. That is, um, there are many different causes of action that uh, aggressive attorneys are pursuing in many different states, whether those are single plaintiffs actions. Um, or class action lawsuits or shareholder suits. So um, we've seen a significant in, uh, uptick in these types of litigation issues for entities that do have security incidents or data breaches. Um, anytime uh, an entity sends out a letter of some kind associated with a data breach, there is a risk that they will um, get uh, um, an inquiry 
from an attorney on behalf of a particular affected class of individuals or arguably affected class of individuals. And again, that includes, you know, single individuals, it includes classes of individuals, and it certainly would include, uh, you know, shareholders or other affected individuals like employees um, related to um, a, a particular data breach situation. So there are many different varieties of legal risk here from a litigation perspective and from a regulatory We're, we're going uh, to get into it a little bit further, but just, just to peek around the corner a little bit, are any of the boards or the executives with whom you work beginning to see this as a personal liability issue? Yes, I think they are um, in, in a several different ways. So we're seeing more and more privacy officers and security officers, um, uh, thankfully, uh, receiving more, um, how do I put this? They, they're more likely nowadays to be part of the C-suite conversations. So thankfully, our privacy officers and security officers are starting to get the bandwidth that they really need to do their jobs. Um, but also, I think that's a reflection of the fact that you know, many of these folks are, in fact, now at the leadership level in organizations, as they should be, in my opinion, um, and they have liability associated with their jobs, given what they do. So um, not only are, um, you know, boards being um, implicated in different types of um, actions by uh, dissatisfied shareholders, for example, but, um, you know, individuals like the privacy officer and the security officer can be held liable as well, depending on their role in the organization and what it looks like from a responsibility perspective in terms of the data privacy and security controls that have been implemented in that organization. So, you know, so thankfully we are seeing an increased um, involvement of these types of leadership roles in enterprise decision-making, but at the same time, we are seeing increased liability for those roles um, as well when something goes wrong. I ask you, obviously, um, we've had a lot of ransomware attacks, the, uh, the threat du jour, I call it, numerous other attacks have demonstrated that when there is a compromise of the triad, as it's called, confidentiality, integrity, and or availability of any other data systems and devices, these, these compromises can have adverse effects on quality of care and access care, timely care, all of which in turn affect patient safety. How should the trustees or the directors and executives think about the connection between patient safety and the compromises of confidentiality, integrity, and availability? Yeah, really, really good question, Bob. And it, it's a question that I'm talking with a lot of clients about. So that, that does um, reflect the nature of the environment that we're living in every day from a data security perspective, to your point. We are doing a lot of tabletop exercises with customers, and we are seeing that um, our clients are becoming increasingly interested in involving senior leadership and board members in those tabletop exercises because it's incredibly important yeah. for those leadership folks to understand what the potential fallout of one of these events could be. 
Um, we spend a lot of time talking about, of course, reputation, but more importantly for our healthcare entities, we spend a lot of time talking about downtime procedures and what that might look like. How do we continue to function as a healthcare entity? And how do we continue to provide services to our patients when all of our systems and devices are offline for one reason or another? Either they were taken offline by a threat actor or they were taken offline in response to actions by a threat actor. So, you know, it, it's increasingly part of the conversation, the reality of what it looks like to go down in response to a really scary type of attack like a ransomware attack in these circumstances, how quickly um, can we respond with downtime procedures? How quickly can we bring critical systems back up? What does that mean for patient safety? And what does that mean um, for how we can move forward in an efficient and effective way as an organization? Um, so, you know, these conversations were obviously being had at some level in, in many, if not most of my clients prior to, you know, sort of the last year or so. But in the last year, we've truly seen an increase in interest and thankfully really robust discussions with leadership and the C-suite and the board about what that looks like in terms of organizational impact. That's a, uh, a very, very positive trend and, and something to be optimistic about. I'm really glad to hear that's, that's what you're seeing. So the, um, in the AHLA article that I mentioned a moment ago, we cited two trends that uh, merit the attention of healthcare leaders. One, we just spoke about the increasing possibility of personal liability around uh, any failures in this area. The other was around uh, the emergence of a de facto standard of care when it comes to cyber risk management. And I want to drill into the standard of care for a moment. You know, obviously in healthcare, there's great appreciation of uh, healthcare standards of care. They're, they're outlined in, among other places, the ECRI Guidelines Trust when it comes to acceptable medical care. How do you think about standard of care? in the context of enterprise cyber risk management? And then a related question, are there any analogous cyber risk management standards of care that are emerging that healthcare leaders should be thinking about and paying attention to? Right, right. Um, very important issue. And as we've talked about before, I know you and I both have a lot of thoughts about this. And so I appreciate the discussion here. Increasingly, we are seeing, for many reasons, um, different data privacy and security requirements at the federal and state level, depending on the state, become sort of a de facto standard of care. So, um, you know, as I said, there are regulatory actions at the state and federal level, and obviously those require compliance with those requirements. But if we're talking about these other litigation methods that are being used, uh, again, in, in relation to data privacy and security incidents and breaches by plaintiff's attorneys on behalf of, again, single plaintiff's classes of different affected individuals, which again, may be you know, uh, employees, consumers, patients, shareholders, whoever that is. Um, and they are increasingly attempting to use HIPAA as a standard of care. Um, because it is fairly specific in terms of what the requirements may be. 
and because there are a lot of entities that are familiar with HIPAA requirements. Now, arguably, there's no private right of action under HIPAA, as you know, and arguably, um, the HIPAA requirements do not apply in, in many of these other industries, um, and even in the healthcare industry to many healthcare entities that are, are not regulated by HIPAA. So it's not a particularly good fit in all situations. And, you know, a, a lot of our time in, in dealing with plaintiff's attorneys nowadays is talking with them about why HIPAA is not applicable to a particular state action. But because, again, those requirements are very straightforward um, and, in fact, you know, can be argued in a very per persuasive way, um, that plaintiff's attorneys are increasingly using HIPAA as a, again, de facto standard of care related to these types of incidents. Um, I think, you know, there are other pieces that are being used as well by creative attorneys in certain circumstances, um, you know, whether that's reference to some kind of um, industry best practice, um, certainly misguidance or, you know, some other uh, PCI compliance requirements, for example. So there's different flavors of this depending on the type of incident or breach we're talking about. But again, you know, many of these standards are not meant to be standards of care. They were not written in that way. They were meant to be specific legal requirements for specific types of entities. But to your point, they really are being sort of um, co-opted in a way that, uh, you know, makes them a, a de facto standard and something that I think many attorneys and arguably many judges are starting to look at as, you know, kind of the, um, the baseline of requirements for purposes of data privacy and security issues. Yeah. Well, as you know, um, from our previous work together, uh, among my favorite uh, guidance from, uh, from NIST is the uh, guidance around doing risk assessments, special publication 800-30. And then, of course, OCR published the guidance on risk analysis requirements back in July of 2010. Um, do you think the risk analysis guidance that came out of OCR could serve as a standard of care? hypothetically, in some future case? I think it's certainly possible. Um, I think, though, that, you know, what um, many of the plaintiff's attorneys are looking at as, you know, at least initially, uh, and to your point, you know, this can change. <laughs> and, and you and I both know that that really, that process, that risk analysis or risk assessment, enterprise risk assessment process is really the cornerstone for any good security program. But what I am seeing more often is plaintiff's attorneys referencing um, standards related to specific controls. So in the vast majority of these cases, what we are seeing is you know, reference to the encryption requirements under both HIPAA and the special publications guidance or um, access controls of one type or another. Um, or malware detection requirements, you know, sort of those more concrete technical safeguards that, uh, you know, a, an attorney can point to as either implemented or not, um, resulting in uh, a, an incident or a breach. So I think from my perspective, everything's on the table. 
in terms of where a creative attorney may go with pointing to a regulatory requirement as a de facto standard of care. Um, but at least for now, we are seeing you know, reference to more specific requirements because I think those are easier to explain in certain circumstances, um, but, yeah. but who knows? Sure. Well, just one last point on <clears throat> standard of care. Um, as you know, in January, um, HR, the bill called HR 7898, mislabeled, in my opinion, by some as the HIPAA safe harbor law, uh, was passed to amend the High Tech Act and included a number of things, uh, including the secretary shall consider certain recognized security practices uh, when they're pursuing a case, and it may result in reduced fines and reduced length of audits and lessened remedies. And, and then it went on to cite uh, two recognized security practices, basically. And though, number one, those that are spelled out in the guidance and standards and best practices developed by and under the NIST Act. And then secondarily, uh, the approaches that have been promulgated under the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, which it comes out as a result of the uh, terrific work done by the 405 work groups. So first thing, can you comment on H.R. 7898 being called a HIPAA safe harbor bill? Is it a safe harbor bill? Um, it depends on what you mean by safe harbor. I mean, I don't think it, um, well, it remains to be seen. So just to be clear, we are getting questions from Office for Civil Rights about recognized security practices in investigations for clients um, that are being investigated by OCR at HHS. So just to be clear, um, even without a rulemaking, which I would have expected in terms of implementing statutory requirements, um, HHS is moving forward with requesting information related to the uh, statute itself. Now, how it will actually work in practice, we have yet to see. So I don't know if this means that it will um, be sort of a, a reduction in potential penalties or settlement amounts, or if it would potentially knock certain violations out of consideration for settlements or civil money penalties. We just don't have a good idea of what that looks like yet in terms of how HHS will move forward with using the information that clients um, uh, submit uh, related to their recognized security practices in terms of the impact on a settlement or civil money penalty because we just haven't seen any of those cases yet. So I think it will be very it will be very interesting to see how this plays out, um, including with regard to whether HHS will undertake a rulemaking that will clarify whether this actually is a safe harbor or not, um, and what that means in terms of investigations related to breaches, for example. Sure. What what are some of the common types of lawsuits involving HIPAA? as a standard of care. Can you give us a couple of examples? Oh, absolutely. So the most common I think is um, class action litigation related to data breaches. So very often we see in the news all different types of class actions in the healthcare sector. Um, many uh, attorneys that are class class attorneys, you know, for the, for the plaintiffs, for the class, 
are including uh, references to different HIPAA requirements in those um, in in those pleadings. So essentially, referencing HIPAA requirements, uh, mostly in the healthcare sector, but occasionally not. Um, you know that that basically try and create, um, as you say a standard by which an entity who had a breach should be held for purposes of, you know, pleading um, negligence issues or harm to individuals or whatever they may need to plead, number one, to get class certification, and then obviously to actually maintain an action once they've, once the class has been certified. So it, it's sort of on two separate levels with class action litigation. First, are all of the individuals affected in the same way? And then second, you know, exactly how were they affected? How were they, how were they hurt? How were they harmed? And so, you know, sort of deferring to HIPAA as, as this standard, um, arguably, <laughs> because it is a federal standard, um, you know, is an attempt to arguably wrap in uh, additional potential violations that could result in harm to individuals at the end of the day. Now, again, harm is a very difficult thing to prove, and there are a lot of class action litigation uh, lawsuits ongoing out there, even as we are speaking now, where there is a uh, question about harm to individuals as, as a result of a breach. So still, still an open question. Um, the other type of litigation that we see very often is single plaintiff litigation. So um, as you can imagine, there are disclosures of information um, about, you know, one individual here or one individual there. Uh, you know, when a when a physician may um, disclose information improperly, or a hospital may disclose information improperly, um, and then again, HIPAA is used as a de facto standard by a plaintiff's attorney who is representing a single individual related to potential harms as a result of that single disclosure of information about an individual, whatever the circumstances may be, whether it was inappropriately to um, an employer or to law enforcement or, you know, really um, any similar situation um, could include potential HIPAA violations. So we see it, again, in, in many different situations. Um, and, uh, you know, I think whether or not we'll see it more is a good question, but I think we will. So let me, um, in that regard, let me tee up a, uh, we're not going to talk about specific cases. So this is a scenario teed up as a hypothetical. Uh, hospital suffers a ransomware attack, and we know those are happening uh, by the dozens, if not hundreds. Uh, patient is admitted to a hospital uh, while it's under attack and is not told about the attack. Critical data systems Devices are unavailable. We have a compromise of availability, classic with ransomware. Patient suffers injury um, and dies. The lawsuit uh, alleges inability to access critical monitoring data and devices in the midst of that attack. And um, let's say there are multiple causes of action cited uh, and the lawsuit asserts that there are departures from accepted standard of care. Uh, and among other things, um, a failure to conduct appropriate assessments and risk analysis and identification of potential hazards uh, and uh, or taking action regarding patients who are at risk when the hospital 
electronic systems are not operational. Long-winded scenario. I know you're familiar with it. Could such a scenario constitute a first successful cyber-driven medical professional liability lawsuit or negligent homicide lawsuit? I think, you know, from my perspective, I think the answer is certainly yes, it could. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, we are seeing lawsuits being filed for arguably much less severe impact to individuals as a result of a data breach. So in the vast majority of cases, and just to be clear, at least to date, in the vast majority of cases, you have a, an attack um, that, while it may take systems offline, does not necessarily result in, in direct adverse events to patients. Now, again, to your point, Bob, there have been a few, and they're very scary. Um, so, but we are seeing, of course, lawsuits in, in all of those circumstances. So whether it's an individual who um, may have identity theft as a result of a particular type of cyber attack, or an individual who may have a serious adverse outcome as a result of a, a cyber attack while they were receiving treatment. Um, you know, so there are different sort of, um, you know, the harm that can be associated with these types of events is on a spectrum. And we certainly see litigation associated with potential harms anywhere on that spectrum. So um, just because something is less serious doesn't mean we won't see litiga litigation. And I'm using those, those uh, words in quotation marks. Um, and certainly, if something results in, in a more serious outcome, I would expect to see litigation as well. So, you know, jumping outside of healthcare for a moment for the purposes of uh, maybe finding some lessons learned, um, these cases, again, about which we won't speak in any detail, outside of healthcare, the, the famous Target case, the Yahoo case, Equifax, in all three situations, derivative lawsuits were filed claiming that the respective C-suites and boards violated their fiduciary duties. And um, I know in healthcare, we have a certain number when it comes to large systems, we have a certain number of publicly traded, uh, very gigantic companies. We also have a lot of nonprofits, so we don't typically see a derivative lawsuit in a nonprofit situation. All of that said, just thinking about what happened in Target and Yahoo and Equifax, um, and again, without commenting on the specific cases, are there some lessons learned here for healthcare directors and trustees and executives? Certainly, certainly. Um, and I think it, it goes back to what we've talked about already, um, Bob, and that is that, you know, um, the fact that we live in the world that we live in today that is data driven and that um, data is so important to everything we do every day, whether it's a healthcare entity or an education entity or a retail entity uh, or financial entity, whatever the case may be, um, you know, data drives everything. And as a result, um, when we have an incident that affects our data, um, it can have serious fallout. Um, and so I think, again, what I'm seeing more and more and in response to that new reality, or I wouldn't say new reality, it's been a reality we've been living for a while, but um, the, the really involvement 
by corporate leadership, I think is fairly new, to be honest. And I think it's an improvement um, upon a previous situation, because I think given that corporate leadership, that the C-suite, that the board is now understanding how crucial the availability of data is to what we do every day, no matter what kind of um, entity we work for, um, they are now rightfully paying more attention to what it means when that data is affected. So whether it's, an, it's affected by some kind of insider threat or it's affected by an external threat, um, they are paying more attention to what it means for their organization. And whether that means, as you say, um, an impact to um, operations such that there are significant business losses um, or from a healthcare perspective, as we already talked about, impact that results in loss of life. Um, and so again, while they are certainly not the same thing, um, they do of course create risk from a legal perspective for entities, um, whether or not it's a business loss or it's um, identity theft or it's loss of life. And so thankfully, again, I think what we're seeing as a result of you know, all of the seriousness in terms of the incidents themselves, but also the legal fallout as a result of those incidents is a, an increasing involvement of these leadership teams in understanding um, both what the incident means for their organization. Um, that is, if this happened, how would we be affected? Um, from a day-to-day -day work level, but also from a legal perspective. That is, okay, what do our regulatory risks look like? What do our litigation risks look like? Um, how do we prepare for both an incident, but also for the fallout from the incident? You know, implicit in uh, all of our discussion up to this point is, even though we've not technically defined it, is this concept of duty of care. And within HIPAA, as you know, a, a big part of your wheelhouse, and you know, forgotten more about it than I'll know, there's, uh, there are definitions around uh, reasonable diligence, uh, reasonable cause, willful neglect. Can you briefly summarize some of these terms and, and con comment on how they might be applied in a legal action from a, a duty of care perspective? Sure, sure. And I think it's a great, it's a great point to make, Bob, because you know, um, I think some of the disconnect between, uh, you know, what we're seeing in litigation and what these standards actually provide for is based on the fact that what is reasonable for an enterprise changes. So, um, you know, under HIPAA, as well as under, you know, these other kind of, in quotation marks, standards of care, whether it's federal uh, guidance or contractual guidance like PCI or state requirements, whatever the case may be, um, it, implicit in many of these, as well as explicit, as you say, in, in many of these, like HIPAA, is reasonable and appropriate. That is, we cannot expect any entity to be perfect. No entity ever can be perfect and we can't legally expect them to be perfect. But what we do expect is that they take all reasonable and appropriate actions based on the size and type of the enterprise and the data they hold and the risk to that data. So at the end of the day, it, it is a 
sliding scale, if you will. Um, and it, it really truly depends on what type of entity we're talking about, what kind of data it holds, and what kind of risk there are to that data. And locking an enterprise down um, is not a reasonable response. So at the end of the day, you know, while some plaintiff's attorneys may argue that an entity must implement this control or this control, um, that may not in fact be appropriate for that particular type of entity. And what we have to understand is that these standards um, include an analysis of whether or not any particular implementation of a safeguard or a control is reasonable for the organization. That's a hard argument to make, particularly if something very scary or, or bad has happened. So at the end of the day, we need to always keep in mind both, uh, you know, from my perspective as a former regulator, but also from my perspective now in advising on legal risk, that at the end of the day, we have to take reasonable and appropriate actions. And what that means is we have to take those actions, but we also don't have to be perfect. So, you know, it's really about finding the balance in terms of taking those reasonable steps to protect the data and to ultimately protect our customers, while at the same time understanding that the data has to flow um, for our businesses to work properly and no one can be perfect at the end of the day. I smiled when you um, <clears throat> said reasonable and appropriate. I was so intrigued in my early days of being a student of HIPAA that I actually counted the instances of the use of reasonable and appropriate and the adverb <laughs> version reasonably and appropriately. And I think I counted it 22 times in the HIPAA security rule. Um, so uh, that, that concept certainly uh, uh, is present all the way through. Um, I was uh, recently reading uh, something published by Gartner uh, last month in, in a document they called their key takeaways from their board of directors survey for 2022. It says, in the past five years, the percentage of boards that consider cybersecurity a business risk has risen from 58% to 88%, yay to that, I say. In light of this, you need to think more strategically about presenting cybersecurity in terms of business risk and not technology. That last sentence, the advice to CIOs and CISOs out there. Um, how might you translate this into advice for healthcare executives and board members? And, and again, seeking what we can provide to our listeners that they can take back into their organizations. Right, right. Um, you know, again, I, I absolutely agree that it, it is a very positive development, in my opinion, that more leadership um, uh, involvement is, is really becoming the norm. So again, you know, we really do want to see leadership involvement in these issues because we want to make sure that the privacy teams, the security teams, the legal teams that deal with these issues have the resources that they need to appropriately protect the organization. Um, and that, as you know, Bob, probably better than most people, um, hasn't been the trend. Um, in many cases, these IT teams and privacy teams um, are, are consistently having to do more with less money. 
um, less resources, and um, and it, it, it is difficult. It makes their jobs very difficult. So at the end of the day, first, we want, we, we want to make sure that leadership is aware of what's necessary. So there has to be a certain level of involvement that, that is, to some extent, somewhat detailed, because we have to have robust conversations with the C-suite and with the board as applicable um, about what is necessary from a safeguards and controls perspective in order to protect our business, to protect our consumers, to protect our data, in order to get those resources devoted to those efforts. Um, and not just once or not just twice, but over time. Because again, we need to be doing all of these activities over a period of years and what's reasonable for our organization changes over that time. So, so it's about, you know, when we're implementing these types of uh, controls to protect our data, ensuring that uh, leadership and the board really understand what that means and what's involved there. And then, of course, when a bad thing happens, we need it to be a situation in which this is not the first time that leadership and the board has heard about, you know, what this bad thing is or how it can affect the organization. So in no circumstance do we want the first time a significant ransomware attack occurs to be the first time that the board has to make a decision about you know, how to move forward, both in terms of taking systems offline to protect consumers, uh, downtime procedures, uh, business losses, ransomware payments, we don't want that to happen. That is, that is in my mind, the worst case scenario. Um, you do not want to have to be having those conversations while a really terrible and scary thing is ongoing for your organization. So, uh, as I said previously, we are seeing much more, uh, many more situations in which, thankfully, those uh, conversations are occurring ahead of time as part of tabletop exercises or um, you know, discussions of new policies and procedures in organizations. And I think that's really key um, to ensuring that everybody is on the same page about what kind of um, circumstances uh, we might be dealing with in the future um, and how that'll affect the enterprise, again, from an incident perspective, and then, of course, from a litigation risk perspective, not just from consumers, but um, you know, from shareholders and, um, you know, understanding what the regulatory risk looks like as well. Makes the world of sense. Um, is there anything you'd add from, um, you know, what a bottom line point of view at this point? Bottom line, um, you know, I think, Bob, as, as you know, you and I have talked over the years, for many years, about regulatory risk in this, um, in this sector in terms of data privacy and security. And I think folks for a long time have understood, at least on some level, that there is significant regulatory risk, um, certainly from a federal level, and as we've talked about, increasingly from state attorneys general. Um, but I think to your point here, what we are really seeing is, is kind of a whole new world with regard to litigation risk. Um, and arguably the risks associated with litigation were previously not as serious as the risks associated with regulatory action. I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think that 
um, you know, entities have to be very cognizant of what it means um, to have litigation resulting from a particular security incident or data breach um, and all the types of litigation that can result. So I, I think that's why hopefully this conversation we've just had has been helpful um, in terms of thinking through those issues before they happen. Well, I think that's great. And <clears throat> if I may uh, end with this thought, given all the great advice that you provided, um, I come back to risk management is risk management and healthcare organizations have been doing risk management for a long, long time. As it relates to cyber risk management, I would just urge organizations to just stop throwing controls at things and the latest shiny new gadgets that are out there. And from the point of view of the board, trustees, directors, as well as the executive team, if you stay focused on three things, I think you're gonna get this right. Number one, make sure your organization is identifying and prioritizing all of your unique risk. As I always say, if you've seen one hospital's risk, you've seen one hospital's risk. Secondarily, discuss, debate, settle on your appetite for risk. That is determine what level your organization is prepared to accept. And then last but not least, once you understand your risk and set your appetite, manage each risk, make informed decisions about which ones you're going to accept and which ones you're going to treat. I think that goes a long way to put an organization in the place that you described earlier of being reasonable and appropriate about it. It's a serious growing, in fact, it's, it's become an ESG and social responsibility issue given all the critical work performed by healthcare organizations. So I'll end with those three things. And, um, and with that, Ileana, unless you have any final thoughts, I'll say we've, uh, we've done our work here today. Agreed, great conversation. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.